The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to the booklist Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and in today's show, as we find ourselves in the interregnum or wilderness, perhaps, between the 50th anniversary episode of Doctor Who a couple of weeks ago, and this Christmas's final episode featuring Matt Smith, I'm looking at the 49-year-old phenomenon of Doctor Who novels, which started out as novelizations of the TV show in the era before VCRs and personal video recorders, and then turned into a whole diverse range of spin-off novels featuring new adventures for the Doctor, his companions, and the various worlds they inhabit. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Mark Platt, author of one of the Doctor's final episodes on TV in the 20th century, the Sylvester McCoy episode Ghostlight, who then turned his hand to Doctor Who novels, first novelising his own story, then Ben Aronovich's episode Battlefield, his straight-to-video adventure Downtime, which featured Sarah Jane Smith and the first appearance of the Brigadier's daughter, Kate Lethbridge-Stewart, and since then various audio adventures in the form of two-handers and monologues for the Doctor's companions as well as full-cast audios, including this month's The Beginning, a story narrated by Caroline Ford, reprising her role as Susan, the Doctor's very first companion. However, before that... In a panel discussion recorded at Sci-Fi London, the London International Festival of Science Fiction and Fantastic Film, earlier this year, I'm talking to two of the TV writers, Paul Cornell and Terence Dix, the latter script editor of the TV show between 1970 and 1974, and young adult novelists, Jenny Colgan and Tommy Dombavand, all four of whom have written Doctor Who novels and novelizations, respectively. To give you a taste of Terence Dick's work, here's an extract from Tom Baker's reading of Dick's novelization of his episode, Robot, which was released in paperback form as Doctor Who and The Giant Robot. Yates had called in that journalist girl, Sarah Jane Smith, and she, of course, had involved the Doctor. The Brigadier still wasn't sure what had really happened. It seemed to be mixed up with a blue crystal from an alien planet and some giant spiders who wanted the thing back. The doctor had managed to clear things up, but he'd gone missing himself in the process. Just as they'd given him up for lost, he'd reappeared again, but in a really shocking state, looking as if he was about to die on them. And then, the brigadier frowned ferociously, he'd seen this last bit himself and still didn't believe it. A little chap called Choje, one of the monks from the meditation centre, had turned up, claiming to be a time lord, like the doctor himself. Floating in mid-air as cool as you please, he told them that the doctor's old body was worn out by his exertions, and he'd have to trade it in for a new one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 50th anniversary panel of Doctor Who spin-offs at Sci-Fi London. Sci-Fi London is short for the London Science Fiction and Fantastic Film Festival. We're in its 12th year, and every year we like to have a mix of uh, screenings, talks, live events, free events such as this one. I'm very proud to welcome to the stage four Doctor Who novelists, Terence Dix, JT Colgan, Tommy Dombavand and Paul Cornell. Terence, needless to say, shall we start with you? Um, Thank you. <laughs> I believe your first uh, Doctor Who novelisation came out in 1974? Something was... like that, yes. It was uh, maybe a little before, maybe it was written a little before, because um, towards the end of my time on Who, um, Target, uh, Target Books had started up a new children's line, Mm. Amongst the uh, what what you do apparently is you go around and buy up just, uh, stuff cheap, and they went to a publisher called I think White Lion, and they said, well we've got these three old Doctor Who books. They never did very much in hardback, but you know <laughs> you can have them cheap. So uh, the editor Richard Temple bought them, bought them in, and uh, put them in paperbacks, you know, with nice bright covers, and they sold like hotcakes. Far more than everything else in his line, you know. (laughs) Eventually, Target Books became Doctor Who Books, you know, the (laughs) others just faded. 
And at a certain stage, he realised he'd got three bestsellers, but he'd only got three. And he came rushing to the BBC, got a licence, came to the Doctor Who office and said, I desperately need Doctor Who books, which is what you like to hear as a writer. Uh, who is going to write them? And I leapt up and said, I will. <laughs> Never having written a book in my life. <laughs> and uh, so that's how it started. I mean, I remember I did the first one. And, uh, well, first of all, I was a bit late with it. So instead of sending it through the post, I personally delivered it to the publishers. And one of these terribly nice middle-class young ladies you always get in publishers said, oh, you bought it in yourself. How kind. <laughs> and I thought, um, I want a good thing here, you know, because deadlines are a bit stricter in uh, television. And so then silence for weeks and weeks. Phoned up the... So I thought, well, they hate it. They're going to junk the whole idea, you know. So I phoned up the editor and said, uh, How's, uh, what's the news on the Doctor Who book? And he says, it's at the printers. When am I getting the next one? <laughs> and that was, you know, the beginning of a whole string of them over the years. And you said, when am I getting my cheque? <laughs> well, indeed, yes. It's always a, always a problem with publishers. Now, first of all, the plan, first of all, was I was a kind of unofficial editor. And I would find the ones I... I was still, at, you know, script editing who, so I was pretty busy. Mm. So I'd write what I could, find someone else to write the others. Mm. But gradually over the years... Um, people dropped out because scriptwriters don't like writing prose and the money wasn't as good as television money. Mm. And I always feel at pains to point out this was not a fiendish plot on my part to grab control of the life. <laughs> it just kind of happened that it refined down to me and I ended up doing about 70 mm. over the years. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> Casting your mind back, though, to the first one, which I believe was uh, Andy Autonomous Invasion. Yeah. Um, how did you find the process of writing your first novel? I mean, I guess you'd script edited Spearhead from Space. So having been involved in the production, was it easy to think of it in terms of just dialogue and just a description? I, I know, I don't, obviously the first one, you know, was more of a challenge because mm. I say never having written a book of any sort, but I don't remember it being particularly difficult. Mm. I just sat... I mean, for one thing, there's a deadline and, you know, and the check and the money, and I just sat down and did it, you know, <laughs> got, got on with it. And then uh, I had a little more time at the beginning, and you, you might notice that my earlier books, I elaborate a little more on the television script, you know, and mm. fill in background and that kind of thing. Later on, there wasn't time. Um, I was writing one a month. And also, I, I made a political decision, you know, a creative decision, that the right thing to do was to reproduce the show. Mm. And the idea of the book is to play the show in the, in the reader's mind. Because the other thing is, is that um, that was the only resource in those yeah. days, you see, who never, ever got repeated, not in a blue moon. Mm. And um, nowadays, of course, absolutely everything is, uh, you know, is available that, you know, that, isn't, uh, that exists. But in those days, um, if you missed it, you missed it, and the only way back, the only way to recall it or catch up or whatever was the novelisation. You know, before even VHS, let mm. alone DVD. So that was a big help to me in its time. Yeah, you you were the literary video recorder of Doctor. Yeah, I, yes, indeed, indeed. In <laughs> fact, I, I so, still have no idea which early Who's I've seen and which I read. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. About <laughs> in, in somebody told me. I don't know if it's true. In Australia, they, the books came out before the television series reached <laughs> So they got fans of the books, and then they suddenly realised, oh, there's a television series attached to these books. <laughs> and, and the five doctors showed up at my local bookshop before it was on telly. Did it? It did, it did, it did, yes. Uh, that was a huge cock-up, and the publishers were very annoyed, but I wasn't because it sold really well. <laughs> <laughs> Fast-forwarding to the early 90s, Doctor Who's been cancelled, um, but you wrote uh, the second of the new novels. What was that experience like, writing a novel now, where that, it was that, the only version? That was tough, because right. um, obviously if you're doing the script, it's, it's, you know, you've, you've got the story, you've got the dialogue, pretty much. Um, though I always say there's a lot you haven't got. I mean, the script tells you what people say and what they do. It doesn't tell you how they look, how they feel, what the atmosphere is, what the scenery is, what the weather is. All of that stuff is done by later, after the script, by the actors, the directors. So you have to kind of replace all those, you know. But a book, um, 
Doing an original book, I, I did find much harder. And I remember Peter Darwell Evans sent my first draft back with a sheaf of notes, many of them far from complimentary. <laughs> but I got over that, you know, and I came up with one that, you know, with a version that he liked, and I learned during the process. And I like doing them now um, because I, um, what you can do is bring in. You're not tied to somebody else's story. You can be in your own interests and preoccupations, mm. which is why you'll find all my novels are full of Nazis, vampires, <laughs> <laughs> Chicago gangsters, <laughs> and various other things. Yeah, Churchill. And Winston Churchill features largely. Yes. Well, speaking of which, just this year, BBC Books have reprinted eleven Doctor Who novels from across uh, the various incarnations, for a better word, that the novels have existed in the Target novelisations, the Virgin novels, the BBC books, and the one of yours that they've chosen is Players. Mm -hmm. Was that a particular favourite of yours? Did they ask you? No, nope, no, no, they're all particular favourites. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was simply that was the one. No, I wasn't consulted or anything. You know, okay. that was the one they. My main interest was that they did actually do one, you know, that I, I would have been hurt. And hurt and disappointed had I not been uh, included in the list, but at least I got one in out of 11. Thinking of your parallel career as a novelist on other topics, um, a couple of years after your first Target book, you wrote uh, The Mountaineer, um, which was a historical novel. The Mountaineer, no. sorry. Um, you know, redcoats, always yes, get their man. Yes, you know, that. What, what was, how, how was that writing your first non-Who novel? Uh, that, well, you know, again, uh, that was... Uh, Richard, one of the things that happens is editors... One of the things that happens is that editors move a lot, you know. And I always used to say, it's like the old marriage joke, you don't lose an editor, you gain a publisher. Because in his new job, he's going to be looking for writers, and if you and he got on well, you see. Now, Hemwood and I had got on... Uh, he was a awkward, prickly bugger, Hemwood. He had sort of the reverse of public relations, you know. If he could upset somebody, he wouldn't. But I quite liked him in a weird kind of way. And... Um, he was very keen I should write for him when he went to Blackie. Mm. And he says, what the youth of today need, Terence, is good old-fashioned adventure. <laughs> and what I want, which I, I just thought, you know, didn't particularly believe. And he said, what I need is a book about the Canadian mountains. <laughs> of course. And I said, are you sure, Richard? You know, it's, a bit, it's a bit dated. And he said, no, no, that's what they want, the mountains. <laughs> So I did, you know, I went to Canada House, bought a lot of books, and they were reasonably historically accurate, you know, and read up on the mountains, and I did a trilogy about the mountains, which, to my amazement, sold reasonably well. So that's what it was like. Even the Canadians liked them. <laughs> Brilliant. Then, uh, moving on to Paul, your first uh, Doctor Who novel wasn't long after Terence's. Well, two books. Obviously. We were linked, weren't we, Paul? We, we liaised. We liaised. We liaised. We liaised because I specifically came after it because I'd always wanted to, to do something professionally with Terence, having sort of, you know, worshipped at the author's like and um, so I, I said to Peter Darwin's obviously this book needs to be linked to Terence Dix's book. And he said, yes, 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 yes. That's how we get easily. We had a little pop thing that fit into it, too. Um, well, Dr. Hughes referred to as the wilderness year, oh. which we call the theme park years, because it's all our stuff, it's all good stuff. And um, yes, so yes, revelation. Um, that covered with um, a very small astronaut. And a building transported to the surface of the moon. Obviously, it's just they can never use them to keep it. I got some, those are some of my better colours. That was terrible as well. as well. What, what was your route into to Doctor Who? I believe your first published piece was a short story in Doctor Who magazine? Yes. Um, I wrote fan fiction. Um, stories I wrote at school contained some characters that appeared in my fan fiction. And um, one of my fan fiction stories became the basis of the fourth one along there, Human Nation, one of the Doctor Who novels, which became the basis of one of the Doctor Who TV episodes. So stuff I wrote at school, direct letter to Doctor Who on TV. I'm so pleased about that. And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, so, yeah, and uh, Peter Darwin, who was a great editor, 
it was looking round for people who could write Doctor Who prose for them. Bless him, he went after the fan fiction. Nobody had ever done that before. Mm. Um, he put ads in uh, Doctor Who books in Doctor Who magazine saying, if you're a fan fiction writer, here's where to submit your manuscript. I sent him a manuscript based on one of my pieces of fan fiction. He wrote back saying, I remember I was standing in the, you all want stories like this. Uh, I was standing in the hallway of my first in Manchester with an opening envelope, and they said, if you're not careful, you'll be writing one of the first Doctor Who books. And I literally started leaping up and down. And then I started to wonder, if I'm not careful, how careful do I have to be? I'm actually going to be inside all the But yeah, um, that's me. <laughs> can, can I say, uh, yeah. Paul, Paul has caused me a great deal of embarrassment because we first met at conventions when, I think almost before you published at all, and other than fan fiction, you know, and Paul used to ask for my autograph and buy me a pint at the bar. And I used to go around saying to, um, over, year, over the years to Doctor Who fans, now look, they always say, how can I write for Doctor Who? And I used to say, look, you are never going to write for Doctor Who. <laughs> Doctor Who is a show for us. There's no such thing as a Doctor Who writer, which is, is true. There are writers who occasionally do a Doctor Who. Mm. And um, in, um, um, uh, Paul, Paul confuted me in this and gave me a great deal of, uh, caused me a great deal of embarrassment. Because, you, know? <laughs> uh, you see, he in a way bore me up because he did become an established television writer and a proper writer before you did who, didn't you? Well, absolutely. Yeah, and the other, the other thing is, I said, we were, uh, in later years, we were walking across uh, a convention together towards the bar, and a small boy approached with a book. <laughs> so I put on my benevolent celebrity smile and reached for a pen, and he paused in Paris and said, I'm sorry, it's for Paul. <laughs> and I thought, well, there comes a time I thought... <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's happened to me as well. <laughs> uh, Paul, like you said, we've got a selection of your Doctor Who covers on screen. And you wrote Doctor Who novels for ten years before you wrote your first non-Doctor Who novel. I mean, I, I guess when you're writing uh, The Continuing Adventures of the Doctor, because there are certain things in place that perhaps makes it easier to write those novels before you embark on an entirely blank page. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing like having a, a, a pattern set down in front of you. And it, it's the opposite to generally. Mm. I followed the established pattern and then did my original stuff, whereas you did your original stuff and then dived in and had a go at the pattern. And uh, I think mine is by far the easier route. Um, uh, I think um, it, it really is a good way to learn how to do prose. Certainly everything from fan fiction to Media time is a great way to learn how to write the prose, and um, you know, I'm just embarking on my second novel in a universe I've created, and then a bit of fantasy universe. Mm. And honestly, it now feels like I've got I'm writing books in a shared world that I made. That's really good, that's easy. It um, yes. Me means you have to tell yourself off if you're not following the rules. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Before I move on to, to Jenny and Tommy, who, like you said, have gone in the opposite direction, come from other books, uh, you had the distinction of writing one of the very last novelizations, as it were, of one of your own scripts, uh, Scream of the Schalke. Oh, yes, that was one of the ones. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> that's one of the this year. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. uh, that was exactly the job Terrence used to do it. I loved finally doing it because then I got to take the thing that had been on screen and do all the pumping it up with extra stuff which, which couldn't be seen on screen, which just were a flash animation. Almost everything couldn't be seen on screen. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Moving on. So yes, Tommy, uh, you come from a background of writing kind of uh, scary books for teenagers. Yes. And, and you've got, you know, an enormous back catalogue of those. So you obviously have a, a, a great reputation uh, with younger people. Was Doctor Who, though, something you'd be itching to write for years? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It was, I was desperate to get a foot in the door. And the number of uh, restraining orders that Justin Richards... <laughs> <laughs> because whenever, whenever I got a book out, I would send Justin a copy and I would say, hey, Justin, I've got a new book out. Should you be looking for somebody to write a new Doctor Who novel, please bear me in mind. 
Um, and I started camping in his back garden. And, uh, <laughs> and, and no, every 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 book uh, at the end of the book festival, and Justin was on the phone dating me. I would stay over and go and watch his events and sort of grin at the back of him. And yes, eventually, eventually, the telephone call came. But I I got this uh, email saying, "Tommy, watch your watch your phone number. I need to call you." And Justin called and. Spent 20 minutes on the phone before mentioning God did it. <laughs> and you were like, get on with it. Just, he's never, he's never called me before. So I sat 20 minutes and he's asking me how, how my children's books are going, how Stream Street is going, because we're developing a TV, TV series based on Stream Street. He's asking about that, what I'm doing in the future. And of course, I'm just sitting there saying, <laughs> and then he said, yes. He said, do you think you'll have time? <laughs> so he said, uh, and, and even better, he said, we'd like one that comes out in the 50th year, so... Uh, and it's all set in uh, 1963, 23rd of November. Mm. So, uh, fantastic. Uh, I've had such fun writing. But I really did feel like a new boy because I, you know, I, I grew, up, grew up reading Terence's stuff, you know, and, and in those wilderness years, you know, I read all Paul's stuff. And, and so I'm very, very absolutely thrilled to be here. And of course, Jenny's great, fantastic book. Mm. Um, because uh, I read your book and I thought, well, I'm not going to get a chance now. <laughs> Thankfully, I've loaded the standard again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. Did, did you find it daunting at all coming into the range? I, I did because I was such a fan. Mm. And such a fan from being such a young person. And, and I did have a bit of a panic. over the. I wrote, I wrote the first chapter and then had a bit of a, oh my God, what if I, what if I really can't do this? And what if I really can't write for the doctor? Um, and I sent it to about half a dozen people. And just said, look, will you read this and tell me if it reads like the Doctor? And thankfully they said, yeah, oh yes, that's fine. <laughs> so I was able to carry on from then on. But yeah, no, I had a wonderful time. But it was very nerve-wracking of doing this first one. I say the first one because I'm hoping I'll be more. Uh, and then Jenny, you come from uh, quite a different background yes. to uh, a lot of other Doctor Who novelists. You write books with a sort of mainly female audience. In yeah, I write mind. romantic comedies. Okay, my, effectively Rom- my day job. But again, was Doctor Who a, a series that you'd been wanting to write for? Do you know it's? I suppose it's just the nature of the thing. But people do ask quite a lot, all the time. In fact, are you a fan? <laughs> and I, I, partly, I thought maybe it's because I'm a girl. And then, but then I, the concept, the, the idea that you could possibly do this <laughs> if you weren't a fan uh, is, you know, I have a passing fondness for Battlestar Galactica, but the idea that I would sit down for three months. <laughs> no, yes, I, 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 was, I was about the only, I've never met a female Who fan. Really, I was the only one. And when I was 10, I won a competition to meet Dot Who. Uh, it was in Smith's. <laughs> and I Which came, one? it was Tom Baker when I entered, but it was Peter Davison by the time I got my prize. <laughs> and in the interim, I'd gone to secondary school. And I can tell you how cool it was to win this prize at secondary Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. And it was just after Princess Diana's wedding, so I had one of those awful short haircuts everybody got. And I went down, television centre, most exciting day of my life. Went in, you were probably there. John Nathan Turner was there, I remember. And um, there was a wooden plywood box in the corner. And Peter Davison was very kind, because I was all trembly, you can imagine. And he was very kind, he went, son, I wouldn't look in there. <laughs> I was like, even Peter Davison, even the doctor thought that I was this little male doctor. Who but the end of this story is, a couple of years ago, I was reading a David Tennant interview, and they said, were you a lifelong fan? They said, yes, when I was 10, I entered a competition to meet Doctor Who, and I didn't win. Oh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so, yes, that's, that's how I got started. Yeah. Female Doctor Who fans, uh, Siva Moffat did a brilliant series called Coupling, mm. which has a sequence in it set in a comic shop, uh, a science fiction bookshop, which was full of beautiful girls, all passionately interested in the Daleks' master plan. <laughs> and uh, it was, of course, a dream sequence. <laughs> I've got to say, though, it's changed a lot. Oh, it, it's completely different now. It's fantastic. It's kind of, um, yes, excellent. You can be kind of proud of the, um, yes. And, and thinking of the formation of young Jenny as a novelist, I mean, how much would you say things like Doctor Who helped you become a creative writer? I, I, do you know Douglas Adams? There's a lot of Douglas Adams in mm. all of us, I think. And just when I started watching it, it was just City of Death was a big, big deal for me. And that whole time was massive. So I really wanted to become a novelist to meet Douglas, actually. <laughs> uh, uh, 
tragic as that is. So, but yeah, it was always part of it. And in fact, annoyingly, my early books, every single one of them, it was during the wilderness years, every single one of them has a reference somewhere, whether it's just about reversing polarity or every single one of them has what was then a really cunning reference. Uh, and now it looks really happy that I would do that, you know? So, um, but yeah, literally, if I had a time machine, I would get in it and go back to 1992 and tell myself to, you know, to start doing it earlier. <laughs> how about you, Tommy? How much did Doctor Who kind of like shape you as an author? Well, it's the same as Jenny. I mean, just watching fantastic stories like City of Death and, um, uh, and, and looking back at when you finally get a chance to see the old stories in, like things like Inferno. And, and the way they're structured, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're very, very complicated stories. And being able to work, follow a, a, a story thread like that, or several story threads, working together mm. um, in parallel worlds even, and just being able to take stories like that and then try and put them down in prose form. Mm. Um, it, it, it can be difficult, but it does teach you. It teaches you how to, watching this stuff over and over again, or reading it as we mm. did in, in, in target novelizations, it just shows you, teaches you how to do it. And I think that's definitely... How I learned to write is through reading target novelizations over and over again until I knew exactly what was going to happen page mm. by page. I began to spot where, 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 where you had your opening scene, your pre-credit scene. You began to spot where the, you know, the, the big changeover was, where the Doctor finally realised what was going on and how he could solve it. Uh, and one of the things I did with Shroud of Sorrow is I wanted to write a story. One of my favourite types of Doctor Who story on the TV has always been where the Doctor isn't in charge to begin with. He really doesn't know what's going on and he's trying to... He's trying to add live as he goes along, and I, I, I made sure mm. that the eleventh Doctor in my book was like that—that mm. that he makes some mistakes mm. because I think they're my favourite stories where the Doctor is learning as as the viewer learns. Mm. Well, I mean, the, the subject of Douglas Adams comes up, and I think yes, modern Doctor Who certainly wouldn't be the way it was if it wasn't for Adams's influence. But then I also think Douglas Adams wouldn't have been Douglas Adams if it wasn't for Doctor yes. Who in the first mm. place. I mean, there's that scene in the Daleks' master plan where the TARDIS lands at Lords, and you think, my God, I didn't realise that Douglas Adams was writing it back in the 60s. <laughs> there's, the Daleks in, there's the Daleks interrogating mice who they take to be superior creatures in the same story. Yeah, I, I think he was so slow that he would never chuck anything away. He needed it all. <laughs> he was the opposite of him. Well, and uh, you know, the question I've never asked you, Paul, was whether uh, Rula Lenska's character in the, the second series of Hitchhikers was an influence on Bernie Summerfield, because she plays an archaeologist running around a lot who actually has a watch that creates um, emergencies for her in case one doesn't come across. Do, do you know that that's never been said to me, and I see that now because I listened to that that season when I was growing up, and it's all just, just gets in my yeah. yes. <laughs> Uh, so, does anyone in the audience have any questions for our four authors? Writing for uh, New Companions before they've been on the screen, is that difficult thing to try to keep up with? Yes. Oh, God, I'm trying to write Clara. Right now, I'm trying to write Clara. I have a clue. I wrote Clara. I, I, I was asked. But initially, um, when I was commissioned to write the book, they said Clara's not in it. It's a, the doctor's travelling by himself. And I was about a third of the way into the draft, first draft, when um, I got the call to say, uh, we need Clara in it. And I said, well, I don't know anything about her. So um, after signing several uh, confidentiality forms and giving several of my children away as hostages, <laughs> I sent the script for Neil Cross's Hide. And that, that was all I had. That was all I had to go on for Clara. Um, and nobody told me about the TARDIS redesign, the interior until I saw it on Christmas Day. Because I've got quite a big, uh, two, two or three big sequences inside the TARDIS that worked on the orange TARDIS, the, the central column in this thing. And of course I'm sitting there on Christmas Day enjoying the snow and cities. Oh my God, it, it's all going to be rewritten. So, um, but yes, writing for Clara, so you're doing Clara now. I am doing Clara right now, yes. Are you kind of leaving a lot? But also I vote for Amy and Rory, and then it was the same thing, got the call and said, yeah, no, they're not in it. <laughs> I, had, I, I had quite an unusual experience with that, sorry. When then they said to me, because there's a scene towards the end, without giving any spoilers away, there's a scene towards the end where the Doctor thinks back to many of his old companions. Um, and they said, look, no Amy and Rory. Do not mention Amy and Rory, um, because it's going to be a big thing um, with the, uh, the Weeping Angels of Manhattan. It's a big thing, Amy and Rory going, don't mention it. And I submitted the first draft, and of course one of the notes that came back was, you missed Amy and Rory. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's surely the biggest one. So, uh, 
So of course I have to go in there. Can I, can I just tell you, I'm just going to very quickly tell you my favourite note. Because the thing is, because I've been writing for a long time, and I've been writing about people I've made up. So for about two months, every time I saw Matt Smith, I got real shocked because I'm not used to being able to see the people. The only note I got, or the biggest note I got, was at one point the doctor jumps into the ocean to save some people who were drowning. And I just completely without thinking, I put that he removed his shoes and his trousers and dived into the water and it came back with a big line on it and it just said, the doctor does not remove his trousers. <laughs> 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 People wake up in a cold sweat thinking of John Pertwee's tattoos. You know. <laughs> You're just not um, yes. I'm actually just thinking of companions. I mean, Terence, you wrote the book Mean Streets, which was like a Doctor Who novel without the Doctor in it. I mean, was that a weird experience? For a while, yes. Uh, remind me what that's about. Oh, <laughs> God. Um, it, had an, it had an ogre on Private Eye in it, and it had some of the Seventh Doctor novel companions in it. Um, but beyond that, it's been a while since I've read it as well. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the Doctor is in it, isn't he? Somewhere? No, I think it was, it, was, it was one of the new adventures. It was one that, of Benny's ones. Yeah, it was a Benny book. Yeah. I, yes, I, I, remember, <laughs> I remember the ogre on Private Eye, because there's a scene where... Um, they have an Ogon police chief, and our hero and heroine are all in front of him. And I thought, now I've got to write a scene where he says, Ah, you bad people, what you do here? What do you mean, you see? And I thought, oh, I can't be doing with that. So when the heroine comes in and says, No, 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 we're not, we're, we're good people. And the Ogon says, well, of course you are, dear lady. I wouldn't do it for a moment insinuate. And I sort of wrote him with George Sanders. <laughs> and I had, then I, I thought of it, you know, the excuse for it was that some experiments have been carried out to brain-boost Ogons. Most of them had died, but he was one of the few survivors, you see. So uh, I, I, remember, I remember that bit, yeah. I had to do a book, and again, you'll have to remind me about the title, in which the doctor is completely sort of shattered because he's blown up Gallifrey in the Time War or something mm. and doesn't even know who he is or what he is. It's a, it's a spy book, mm. sort of. It's got oh, Burgess yeah. and McLean and all those. In. That was difficult because the Doctor just didn't know he was the Doctor. He mm. did, you know, and he, he... I mean, for instance, we, when somebody's trying to assassinate a friend of his, you know, a group of Russian thugs, the doctor suddenly finds himself in the middle of it, throwing them in all directions. And he didn't know he could do that. You know, his body knew, but his mind had forgotten. You know, that, that was quite tough, no, doing a sort of blank doctor. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yep, front row. Um, I was at the panel yesterday, and Janet Fielding was talking about how difficult it was when she was in the that there weren't as many women around as she would have liked. And I just asked Jenny how, um, how you feel about that. Do you feel I, it's been a help or I'll, I'll go to one, one thing, which is um, SFX magazine, right, which I have read for years. I have read that damn magazine, and they made all these horrible, stupid jokes about cystitis when the book came out. I was just like, there's only one reason you're doing that. There is only one reason you're doing that, and it's because of that. So, and then the, the, there is the, that kind of like, really? Do you, you know, so, yes. <laughs> yes, there are some female-based difficulties around the show, there's no doubt about it. Hmm. But on the other hand, you know, you've, just got to, you've just got to do what you love and, and, and have fun if you can. So there's no point in getting too bold there. But. Hmm. Well, my, my favourite Who novelist was always Kate Orman, you know. So. The, the, the Jacqueline uh, thing, but Drainer. it's just terrific. Hmm. Uh, any other questions? Uh, yep. <laughs> Maybe the others might like to answer this question first because I was at the last panel that Terence was asked this question. At. What do you guys feel about a female Doctor Who? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's been sort of hinted at that it's possible over the years. I mean, even in the Neil Gaiman episode, mm. uh, the Doctor's wife talking about the Corsair, um, mm. apparently. I think they do it to kind of stir people up, you know, think, when, yeah. when they want to get a little Well, they think they did something the same in the Sarah Jane Adventures, but I talked about the number of regenerations, didn't they? Mm. I was claiming there were 507 regenerations available. <laughs>
So well, this is this is the nature of my fandom. I really hate the idea that there are more than thirteen regenerations. I really should be a female doctor. Um, I, I think that's the, the the whole political thrust of the show. That you know, the doctor can be black, he can be um, female, he can be any of this. I or thought was both it, possibly Paul oh, black oh, and female. Oh, <laughs> oh my god! I thought that there's a lovely <laughs> alternate Doctor casting that you've probably seen yes, the meme, and I thought there's Sue. No, she does bake off the girl. Super. Oh, I thought she'd be fabulous. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, the Sue Perkins Doctor. The yeah, Sue Perkins Doctor would be sensationally mm. good. This, this is why I made Bernice. Mm. You know, to, to do that sort of thing with a song. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I think one, certainly one interesting facet of either having a female doctor or a black doctor is it would make the historicals far more interesting because they would come up, that doctor would come up across Martha, far more they, problems. Well, that was why they didn't you know. use Martha anything like. Well, I've pitched this, I've been pitching this for years, ages now, and Albert just keeps telling me to go away. But I have a real problem with Martha and Mickey getting married. I have a massive, mm. massive problem with that. And I, wa- I wanted to go and do a rom-com about their... Marriage <laughs> and with kind of various kind of sidelines into into kind of and yeah no one will let me do it but that is a problematic situation but you know they, they did you know the notorious Fifty Shades of Grey with somebody I, 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 doing I, 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 a rom-com about established TV characters Fifty Shades of Gallifrey yeah <laughs> they, they were going they were going to publish it and somebody warned them you know they were breaching copyright of that particular television program so. Twilight, yeah. So um, she rewrote it, you know, with none, none television connected, you know, and made this colossal amount, amount of money. Mm. Uh, I'd like to thank Terence Dix, Jenny Colgan, Tommy Donovan, and Paul Cornell. Several of Terence Dix's classic novelizations were recently reprinted by BBC Books, including Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster, which features the first appearance of the Zygons, The Three Doctors, Doctor Who and the Day of the Daleks, and Doctor Who and the Auton Invasion. Tommy Dombavan's novel, Shroud of Sorrow, and J.T. Colgan's novel, Dark Horizons, are available in hardback and audiobook formats. Paul Cornell's novelisation of the Doctor Who animated serial Scream of the Schalke is available in paperback now, and reversing the trend of novelizations of TV episodes of Doctor Who, an audio adaptation of Cornell's novel Love and War, which was the first to feature his beloved books companion Bernie Summerfield, is available now from Big Finish Productions, starring Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred. You're listening to The Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and we're halfway through an hour-long show looking at the phenomenon of Doctor Who spin-off novels, which have been a combination of novelizations of existing TV episodes and original plots furthering the Doctor and his companions' adventures in time and space. Next, on today's show, I'm talking to Mark Platt writer of one of the final Sylvester McCoy serials on TV, but also both a novelist and novelizer of classic episodes. To give you a flavour of his work, here's an extract from the latest audio reading of one of his books, The Beginning, performed by Carol Ann Ford, which tells the tale of the Doctor and Susan just as they were leaving Gallifrey. expected it to last. Not then. It was the last thing we even thought about. We clung to each other, trembling as the ship's engines snarled and protested. But we had to get away. Away from our own home. That was all Grandfather said. And I was too young and too scared to argue or ask what we'd done wrong. It just wasn't our home anymore. That's how I remember it. But we all see things differently, don't we? 
There's always someone else's version. They were driving us deeper, down below the citadel walkways we'd gone, dodging in and out of the shadows. I clutched the little bag of clothes and a few books I'd rescued from the house, and Grandfather had his own private luggage, an old bronze trunk that hovered obediently behind us. The start of your career in Doctor Who was writing the TV serial Ghostlight. Yes, but, indeed. Um, but I'd like to concentrate more on your books and audios. Um, however, putting those into context, how did you get that first writing gig for Doctor Who? Well, I'd been sending stuff into the um, the Who production office since since the mid seventies, actually. Um, and he actually, the first one, I got a very nice letter back from from Robert Holmes, which was sort of very encouraging and everything, and telling me sort of you know, giving me a list of books to read and, and things to do. And um, <clears throat> so I sort of went on from there, really. And each time I sent stuff in, I got I sort of edged a bit closer all the time. Mm. The, the, res- the response was more positive, and I, I sort of I went in and I saw Chris Bidmead, and then I saw Eric Saywood. And um, then eventually um, landed up going in to see Andrew Cartmel, who, who was there with Ben Aronovich at the time. And, and um, we sort of hit it off tremendously. Mm. And uh, it went on from there, really. They, they, um, they asked me to do, to do another storyline. And then uh, it was actually still something that I'd originally sent in for Colin Baker that we sort of worked on for a tiny bit. Mm. And then I had this, I'd, I had, I'd had this idea... Um, about doing a story about the Doctor's family, um, which which sort of turned into Longbarrow, mm. um, this this famous notorious <laughs> book, um, which um, was entirely in line with with what um, Andrew and Ben wanted to do with the series, because you know they had this thing about about making the Doctor a lot darker. Mm. And um, this sort of fitted in, and, and the idea really behind Longbarrow was to. Um, I just felt that over the years we knew an awful lot about the Doctor. We we learned so much about it that he wasn't really a who anymore at all. Mm. And uh, I wanted to sort of just knock all that sideways, really. So the answer, my sort of solution, was to, to answer an awful lot more of the questions and then pose knock all ones. those. Yes, post news one, knock all those sideways and say, yeah, well that's that's part of it, but there's even more. Mm. And uh, so that sort of went on. J and T decided <laughs> decided at that point that maybe we were going on a little bit too eagerly, and so decided decided that we do um, something else. So we took the sort of best elements of Longbarrow, the, the the house and everything, and, and turned it into Ghostlight, hmm. and sort of removed it, you know, back back into Victorian things because I think. Um, and Andrew was particularly, he'd been sort of very frustrated with the designers and things on, on the program. Mm. And he just felt that, um, you know, the things that the BBC do best are all, you know, the historical things. So we mm. thought we'd, we'd do something like that. If it, was, it was going to have to be a st- uh, all studio story anyway. So if we, we set it in the Victorian house. Um, the uh, you know the the um, designers and things would, would would know what they were doing. They they they'd have things to fall back on. You know they they know knew where they stood. And of course they had an absolute whale of a time building this thing. And um, it was very bizarre, really, you know, walking walking around this house that had been in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, you could go upstairs and you know through into different rooms. And um, so I think that's why it worked. I th- I think it worked really well, actually. Mm. Um, I mean, <clears throat> you mentioned Lungbarrow mm. and um, an accusation or compliment, whichever you want to look at it, um, that is made uh, for the book quite often is that it's very much like uh, Peaks Gormenghast. And yes. I think um, Ghostlight has a flavour of that as well. Well, it certainly does, because I, I, I adore Mervyn Peake as well. Um, I've been reading that for sort of 20 years before I, <laughs> before I actually sort of got, you know, got my foot in the door there. So I, I just thought it was a good thing to fall back on. It was, you know, it was that sort of flavor. I mean, j- just as Doctor Who sort of pick, there's a sort of pick and mix on all sorts of things, really, doesn't it? Mm. Um, it's, for, it's forever nicking other people's ideas and, and then sort of metamorphosing them in, in, into something Who-ish. And that's really why you know why I wanted to use it. I, I don't really see that 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 should be you know some, something that people could complain about. 
And you've written Doctor Who in various formats. You've written for the TV, you've written yeah. novels, you've written audio plays. Did each of those different forms of writing um, come easily to you, or do you find um, one type of writing easier than another? It's a big gear change. (laughs) (laughs) It always is. Even within the audios, you know, there are different sorts of audio that you do, you know, as we do the Companion Chronicles with with just the, um, maybe two voices or something, when it's from the Companion's point of view. And then you do a full full drama, and that, that again, is a big gear change. But um, I do... I, I think I prefer do it doing both the audios and the novels. I think they're they're closer than than I find. There's there's a sort of shorthand to do it to doing the TV things. You 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 um, you can't put as much much in. You know you can do much more depth in in, in both both books and and the audio things. Hmm. I mean I, th- I think one of the things why the audio is is so good is because because the listener is quite proactive with it. And you know, because you're listening to something, you're using your own imagination to conjure, conjure a different world, and it makes the audios sort of more personal somehow. I think that's that's a great appeal of them. Mm. Just just as it is with with the books, right? whereas you can sit in front of the television, it just sort of washes over you, and sometimes you don't have to think. You know? <laughs> <laughs> with with a lot of the um, original Target Doctor Who novelizations. Mm they stripped a lot out, certainly Terence Dick's ones, and just kind of like barreled through the story. But did you yeah. find when you were doing Ghostlight and Battlefield, it gave you an opportunity to do a director's cut, as it were? Oh, yes, definitely. And just so much more that, you know, had, had, that couldn't get on the screen. And again, you, you know, you can do from different people's points of view and things and, and just go into what they're thinking and the implications of what, what's going on. Whereas... Basically, you know, the TV thing is just a sort of ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, this happens, this happens, this happens. And you, you can have some sort of implications and things there, there obviously, but um, much, much more with, with the, the novels. Just so much more depth hmm. and um, just scope. And, and I just really enjoyed them. I mean, I could sort of <laughs> un- unleash a sort of bit more poetry and things into it as well. <laughs> which I really like doing. And, and um, I just think it, it, maybe that's my style. I don't know. Um, I look at other people and go, I, and go oh, I wish I could be a bit more direct sometimes and I sort of waffle around things. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that, that's just me. But mm. uh, it, I, I, so I really enjoyed doing those. I, 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 I really loved doing... I, I, think, I think Ben sort of set... Uh, ben Aronovich sort of set that style, really, when he, when he did the novel for, for Remembrance. And I, I certainly remember going back to that mm. again and again to see what Ben had done with it and sort of adopting his style almost. Mm. And then, then when I was doing Battlefield, it was quite interesting that, that ben, did, um, ben, ben gave me a few sections that he'd done for himself before, before he, he ran away <laughs> screaming. <laughs> and um, it was quite interesting. I, I sort of amalgamated those, but people I spoke to afterwards, they were thinking that, that um, some, of, some of the bits that I'd written were Ben's bits and, mm. and vice versa, which... This is quite a compliment, actually, and quite nice. I quite like that. <laughs> so it's just sort of you know trying to trying to pick up other people's styles as well. But mm. it's quite a good exercise. Quite quite interesting. Mm. <laughs> and it's interesting that four of your five books are novelizations, either of existing episodes or, in the case of Lungbarrow, uh, a story you didn't get to make for TV. Mm. And therefore, Cat's Cradle uh, Times Crucible was an entirely original novel. Was that um, a fundamentally different experience? Yes, very much so. And I, I, I wish I'd had more time to work on it. I, I don't think, to be very honest, I don't think it was, you know, I, I could have done with a much better editor on it. Um, very li- I, I, I put in the first draft and, and very little came back to change, quite honestly. And I think I could have done with someone standing over me with a gun saying, nope, change this, this <laughs> doesn't work and, and you should be developing this more. But then, you know, I think that's most writers moan that you don't have enough time to do things anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, it, 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 it was strange because I'd never, I'd never written a novel in my life before. Not, not you know, I'd done a couple of, well, I say that I'd done a couple of novels, novelizations by then, but um, this was an entire new thing, that I, an entire new sort of boating lake that I was launching out onto. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, sometimes that probably was a bit out of my depth. I can look at look. I was sort of 
every time you every time I send something off ten minutes later, I want to change it all anyway. Mm. And um, I, you know, I can look at look back at it now and think, oh God, I should have done that and I should have done that. But you know, that's, <laughs> you have to wave bye bye to it sometime. You know? mm. <laughs> well, and you know, and the tagline for the books was adventures you know oh, come on, what is bro- broader, broader and whatever yeah. yeah than the tv series did yes. did you take that to heart or actually oh, did you feel very much so okay very much so i mean you know you could just do enormous things in fact strangely enough you probably could do a lot more of it on on audio because mm. I mean, particularly in the old days you couldn't afford things anyway on, on the bbc I and mean, that was one of the great things that you know what i think the first thing i gave, gave to andrew he just he just looked at the first episode and said well that'll cost the entire season <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah i mean you know you, it, it's just a whole new sort of area it just sort of it, the whole thing just expands in front of you and you have to be careful and work out where you're going to go hmm. um and uh just I don't know. You you have to have a sort of degree of discipline and and, and not sort of go ranting off and <laughs> wandering off and all sorts of things. Hmm. But it is tremendous fun, and it you know it's, it, it's after a while. I mean, even with, even with you know with scripts as well. I I just love it when when the right when you're a little way in, and then the characters start to write themselves and say, "Well, you know, you you, you may you've probably got a, a storyline for them." Um, you've got all that worked out, and in fact, you're halfway through it, and they'll turn around and say, "Well, I'm not doing that. That's not me." <laughs> and so the, the whole storyline heads off in a completely different direction, you know. But um, I rather like I rather like it when the characters take controls. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in terms of getting into the characters' heads, mm. um, the companion chronicles are far mm. more like um, a monologue, I suppose, yes, than uh, yes. any other form of uh, drama. Yes. And that's great because, you know, an awful lot of the time, really, you don't learn an awful lot about the companions, particularly mm. the earlier companions. And I think towards the end, yes, I mean, there, there was a lot more sort of, there was a lot more sort of balance between, say, the Doctor and Ace. She became a much more important character. But a lot of the earlier companions, you, you, you didn't get that depth to them at all. You, didn't, you hardly knew anything about them. Um, oh, Perry's a botanist. We'll <laughs> stop, you know. <laughs> and it's just a lovely chance to get in there and, and get their views on, on how they cope with being the doctor because he sort of walks into people's lives and turns them upside down and then disappears again, you know. Mm. And they get a chance to actually travel with him so they sort of observe him and things. And, and um, I love doing that. But yeah, it, it is very, very interesting doing the Companion Chronicles. I, mm. I like them a lot. Um, it's quite it's quite a sort of strict discipline, really, because you know you, you've probably only got another vo- one other voice as well. Um, but again, because because it's almost like like a sort of because like, as you say, it's like a monologue. It's it's almost like a sort of re- reading prose because you can put a lot more descript- description into it as well. Hmm. So um, yeah, that that is a lot of fun. I enjoy doing those actually. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they've just they they they've sort of knocked them on the head, haven't they? Um, there aren't going to be many more, I don't think. No, so, which I think is a great shame. I think it's a great format. Yes, I think I, I agree with you. Um, so yes, I mean, in, in the beginning, this is, this is quite interesting because it's you know it's this, this first adventure with, from entirely from from Susan's point of view, mm. and um, you know what, one of the first things we, we decided that we weren't going to explain why they were leaving because that's been done. Well, I've done it. <laughs> this is the third time I've done it. So <laughs> we thought, well, we'll just get on to the first adventure, you know. And, and I think the idea was that when we when we meet them in, in Unearthly Child, um, they're already experienced travellers. Mm. But in, in, in the beginning, in, in this, this, this new story, new old story, um, they're, they're complete novices at travelling and, uh, you know, dealing with new worlds. They're, they're, they, they behave more like tourists. <laughs> and Susan's taking, you know, Susan's taking um, taking snap taking photographs, of <laughs> and um, yeah, they're, they're learning about that. They, they, you know, they they have their first inkling of, of the planet Earth, which becomes so special to them as well. Mm. So it was lovely, sort of just putting in little little clues as to, as to what was going to come eventually, and you know, when, when we sort of meet them properly in, in the TV series. Mm. That's a bit unfair saying properly, isn't it? Because <laughs> this is very proper as well. <laughs> Absolutely. 
But but it's interesting, like you said, you had kind of written um, their origin story before, whether it was mm. uh, flashback scenes in Long Barrow, yeah, um, the alt first doctor and susan in um uh, all mortality yes yes but with the beginning it is uh, a cd that is called the beginning, the beginning released in the anniversary month i mean did that make it any more daunting it was a bit scary yes mm. but i just loved it i mean <laughs> i mustn't i really mustn't try and sort of regard regard susan as my own property but i seem to have done an awful lot with her yes and um which is great because I, I love love writing for carol i think she's she's got terrific energy for it still it's mm. fantastic um yes it was i i just felt that i i I felt that I, I shouldn't actually be, be frightened of it because otherwise I, I could have got terribly bogged down in, in um, trying to be terribly faithful to the things, you know, to, to what we know later. And yet it's still, still still keep it fresh. I still had to sort of put, put the clues in, as I say. So we have this thing where, you know, where they, um, I'm not going to give it away for anybody mm. who hasn't heard it yet, but where they land up is, mm. isn't quite where they expect um, and they do quite a sort of strange leap in it in, in the middle of it as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it helps having this other, this other character, Stoin, there as well, who, who is like, well, if, if you know, if, um, if you know war games, you know, the, the um, the gray, the gray suit the gray suited technicians who were mm. working on the TARDIS in the final episode. I think he, he's one of them, and he's da- he's down in the depths, <laughs> um, sort of dismantling the TARDIS basically. Mm. And uh, <laughs> he, you know, the TARDIS then takes off with him him in it as well because he's not best pleased. <laughs> and of course, I'm actually that, David Richardson, the the produ- you know, the line producer on this ask me if I would just sort of leave it open at the end because mm. there will be two more stories featuring Stoin with different doctors sort of through you know going on later about what he's been doing as well and, and they sort of strange thing they sort of unleashed another sort of public nuisance <laughs> <laughs> on the universe without even noticing really but mm. um, it's great fun to play with mm. And I mean, I, I know the the topic of canon and continuity is is, mm. is is sometimes either a bit controversial or something that you think should be be left for the academics. But with um, the beginning, it feels almost like you get to have your cake and eat it. That you presumably liaised uh, with whales, as we shall call them, um, in order to <laughs> yeah. uh, accommodate the scene with Clara happening out of earshot, well, um, we as it to... were, in the beginning. Yes. And then yes, at the indeed. same time, have a little dream sequence with um, sentient chairs that kind of references what you'd written in Lungbarrow. Yes, yes. Um, the, the, the thing with Clara was, was it sort of caught us all on the hop, actually, because I think we actually recorded the beginning about 18 months ago. Mm which means I sort of wrote it even longer, <laughs> you know, sort of about, oh God, 20 months ago at least. And, um, of course, that, that has all been passed by Cardiff at that point. Mm. And um, then, of course, you know, <laughs> along came Name of the Doctor and uh, there's Clara popping up all over the place. So, um, yes, we did have, we had to have sort of a tiny little rewrite. It wasn't very much, actually. It was about a couple of lines. Mm. And it all sort of, it all made sense, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Which was another another good thing that I hadn't sort of put in a lot more detail at the, at the start there, mm. but um, yes, and of course they had to change the cover because origi- originally the the TARDIS that was on the cover I, I described as a pyramid, mm. so then they had they had to put it in as as the sort of tube thing that was that was on on the TV. Mm. So um, yeah, it was it was all right. Fortunately, Carol was coming in anyway to, to record something else. So, so <laughs> I think they just took her aside for half an hour and said, "Can you do this, please?" <laughs> and um, yeah, so it sorted itself out. <laughs> <laughs> but then I guess in a way it's a two-way street because mm. um, your Cybermen uh, origin story, spare parts. Mm. Although I think the TV episode Rise of the Cybermen really doesn't have an awful lot of common in it, other than it is a Cyberman origin story. They at least thanked you on screen mm. for that. Yes, yes, indeed, and um, it's not a lot of similarity, is it? I mean, I th- I th- initially it was going to be a lot. Uh, th- there was going to be a lot more similarity, and I think things just didn't work out. So it sort of went its own way. But it was nice of them to mention me on it. Mm. And um, yes, I'm still very proud of that story. Actually, I think it's terrific. Part. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> and I, I wish I wish they'd actually filmed yours <laughs> rather than the one they did make. 
<laughs> quite now, quite edit that bit out. <laughs> but I agree with you, actually. <laughs> but it, and then it, it's funny. Recently, when they uh, revisited the Cybermen, when um, uh, Neil Gaiman wrote another episode, mm. lo and behold, there's a Cyberman playing the chess Turk with the appears. Silver Turk. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think you definitely deserved a thank you then. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> We've got Kate, Kate Stewart appears all over things now as well, doesn't she? And she Indeed. turned up, you know, in downtime. And uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did, was, was that her first appearance then in downtime or had other yes, writers yes. come up no, with No, no, no. That, that, was, um, that was our idea. That, um, Keith Barnfather, when, when, who was the producer on downtime, asked me if we'd create... Um, if we'd give the doctor, a, not the doctor, the brigadier, even um, a daughter, and I, I came up with the name, and off, off she went. Mm. And um, yes, it was a bit of a surprise when she turned up in the TV as well. So, um, but quite nice, quite mm. flattering. <laughs> Said he, trying to be positive. <laughs> so, looking at the um, <laughs> looking at the various audio plays you've written, it's been a fair smattering of uh, different doctors, whether it's. Well, Gosh, yes. The, whether it's the unrealized um, season twenty-seven story, uh, mm. Thin Ice, whether it's novel yeah. it, or other audio adaptations of unrealized Fifth Doctor stories, uh, whether it's other companion chronicles, so you Possibly. actually have done all the classic Doctors. I have. Well and done. We, ha- we have a couple, couple more Tom Baker stories, very exciting ones actually, that that um, are from stories by um, Philip Hinchcliffe. Mm. I think they. I think um, Johnny Morris has done a couple, haven't there? There have been a couple of those done already but um we've got a six-parter coming up um which is which very much channels robert holmes mm. um, which i think is out next year mm. um I, I was talking to howard carter on saturday at the xl <laughs> and uh he, he's been working on it and having a lovely time doing it and it's 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 very very um robert holmes ish um and i know philip was very happy with it and it's delightful to work with him actually on something Mm. And um, of course, being in the style of Robert Holmes, it's very gruesome and very, <laughs> very naughty. <laughs> and um, had a great time doing that. And there is there is something else in the pipeline on that on that as well. And Tom was just fantastic in it. He really was well, <laughs> on, on the recording days. Him and him and Louise Jameson. Oh, nice. Just, it's just absolutely amazing to work with them. It really is. They are fantastic. <laughs> Tom has so much energy still, mm. and he just—he just—I I was terribly flattered because he kept asking me if you know, think little things if if I'd approve if he if I'd approve you know little changes he wanted to do and things. But everything he suggested was you know to, in 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 the drama's favour. It all worked together, and everything went in the right direction. Mm. And it was just lovely, really. And it is—it's not a Victorian thing, and it's just. It was just a real treat, and I think I hope it's going to turn out really, really well. Mm. Very excited about that. <laughs> and I suppose even more so than um, writing stories that are designed to fit in gaps, as it were, by actually mm. doing things like uh, adapting Children of Seth, adapting Point of Entry, and then writing yes. in association with Phillips Hinchcliffe. It almost feels mm. like you're travelling back into the history of the show and contributing to it. Yeah, it's it is extraordinary, isn't it? Because you know, both Barbara Clegg and, and Christopher Bailey were, were fantastic as well and really helpful. It sort of felt like an honour to go and work with them, and, and the fact that they actually trusted you with something that they'd come up with. You know, um, it was a very strange, sort of strange experience, and sort of slightly unnerving as well because you'd have to sort of, you know, send it into them and then sort of. Wait a bit, there, sort of waiting, waiting for the exam results or something to come in. And um, lovely. I mean, I, I just so enjoyed those stories, and I think they both turned out really well as well. Mm. Particularly with with with, um, with the Chris Bailey story, we have the most fantastic cast with, with Honor Blackman and David Warner and people in it. You know, it's just mm. absolutely amazing to work with. Them. <laughs> It, it sounds like a sort of a big sort of ego trip, doesn't it? Really, it's, <laughs> no, not it's, at all. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just lovely doing it. I adore working for Big Finish. They are fantastically kind. They are fantastically imaginative, mm. and um, you know they are and in, and indulgence. Actually, they indulge all the writers. I think. <laughs> cool. I think that'll do nicely. Oh well, great. Thank you. Yeah. The beginning 
as well as various other companion chronicle monologues featuring an extra character, I guess making it a dialogue, as well as full audio plays, can be found at bigfinish.com. If you enjoyed tonight's Clear Spot, a recent episode of Panel Borders, in which I'm talking to various Doctor Who comic book creators, can be found on my blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com alongside various other podcasts about Doctor Who, including my interviews with Sylvester McCoy, Sophie Aldred, and various other Doctor Who novelists and comic book writers. If you listened to the broadcast version of this episode and were wondering where Andrew Hickey's interview with Lawrence Miles has gone, there'll be a companion podcast to this booklist episode, which will have the full hour-long interview that Lawrence conducted with Andrew. You'll be able to find that online before Christmas, whether you're spending it on a rational planet or not, at sci-fi-london.com stroke podcast. The booklist Clear Spot was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and my next Clear Spot, looking at the world of books and publishing, will be broadcast on January the 23rd, when I'm talking to three female authors of children's fiction, Lottie Niemannen, Fayette Fox, and Sally Gardner. In the meantime, thanks for listening. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.